So if you were around last week, you know that we launched into a brand new um, sermon series uh, on the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And um, I, I rarely break stride with these series. It's just like, it's very important to me that we plan them for months and all that. But, but a, an opportunity arose in the planning, as we were halfway through the planning process, to, um, to do just that, to break stride and take a little breather from that series and do something that's truly been on my heart for like a year. Um, and, and I wasn't going to say no to this. About a year ago, um, I heard a podcast. It was the Unbelievable Podcast with Justin Brierley. And you may not even know what I'm talking about, but it's a fantastic podcast about conversations between Christians and non-Christians about um, Christianity and belief in God and things like that. And uh, this young man was on this podcast, and um, this episode was about the conversation, or really the debate, because it's usually a debate, usually a fight. It's a knockdown, drag out, like, fight, usually, um, when it comes to LGBT issues and people and Christianity. And I don't know about you, but my whole life, all I've seen is two sides in that battle. And I haven't felt like I belonged in either one especially since I became a Christian, right? So before I was a Christian, I definitely belonged on kind of the leftist side that kind of railed against what Christianity has traditionally taught about human sexuality and relationships and marriage. And, uh, you know, I did the protests and I, I wrote um, papers and things uh, like fighting back against that because I thought that was unjust and hateful. I thought Christians were bigots. Um, and then on the other side um, of that, you've got Christians who often, you know, fill that, <laughs> that preconceived bill, right? So, like, they are judgmental. Christians often are a little closed-minded when it comes to people who are struggling with their sexuality and their sexual identity. And I heard this man on this podcast, and I, for the first time in my life, I thought there's another way. In 2018 then, 2019, like, there's another way to be as a Christian in conversation with the culture around us. And it's not a way that forsakes the Bible or tries to rewrite the Bible or pretend like the stuff the Bible says isn't there. It's a faithful way to be in loving, compassionate community with people who are LGBT+. And as a, the pastor of a congregation where there are all kinds of different folks and who belong here as members and different you know, sexual identities and different backgrounds and understandings, like we're a diverse community. And so I just was dying, thirsting for something like this man was saying. And I said from day one, we're going to have him here. And so we had him on, the pot, on our podcast, the Maybe God podcast back in March. And I still said, I want to get him here for a Sunday morning. And, and, you know, people were like, but he lives, you know, on the other side of the world. And I was like, no, it doesn't matter. We're going to have him here. And um, here we are. Today, I get to uh, introduce you to someone I consider a friend and brother in Christ um, who has an important story to share, regardless of whether you're on one of those two sides and your heels are dug in, like especially if you are dug in on one side or the other. He has an important story to share, and I pray that your heart and your ears are open to what God might be speaking to you through our guest this morning. He is a research fellow at the Oxford Center for Apologetics in Oxford, England. He hails from Sydney, Australia. Before that, would you join me in welcoming the author of A War of Loves, the unexpected story of a gay activist discovering Jesus, David Bennett.
Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you, Eric, for such a lovely uh, introduction. It's such an honor and privilege to share this story of how I came to know Jesus Christ. There's nothing better in my life to tell and share. Um, but before I start, I just want to say last night, uh, Julie took me out to have American barbecue, well, specifically Texan barbecue. And uh, after a long analysis of you know, every part of the meal from the mac and cheese to <laughs> the pork rib to the sausage to the brisket, I have concluded that Texan barbecue is the best barbecue I've ever had in my life. <laughs> and as we were walking into this uh, barbecue place, I heard the familiar noise of a cicada. And Julie turns to me, she's like, a what? She's like, that's a cicada. <laughs> like, you Americans, oh my gosh. Like, <laughs> Aluminum, you know. <laughs> Aluminium, I do say, lovely. So this is a, you know, expression of my culture to you, cicada. <laughs> but I want to share with you, when I start this talk, I always like to have a personal hashtag as a bit of fun to start us off, because this is such a deep and divisive question for people, we need to have a good sense of humor in it and a good sense of knowing each other's humanity. So I start with a personal hashtag. My personal hashtag is hashtag fabulous <laughs> made glorious. <laughs> now this really riles religious people up because they're like, oh, you know. <laughs> but what do, I, what do I mean by, why am I using fabulous made glorious? Well, partially because I think in the Christian world, we've fallen into what in fancy speak at Oxford is called anthropological dualism, where we either see our body as completely good or our body as completely bad and fallen. And we don't have an in-between theology that synthesizes the fact that in the beginning, we were created very good. And that word in Hebrew actually means like beautiful or innate or like you're attracted. So when God looked at us, made us in the beginning, male and female in his image, he said this was very good. And he was attracted to us. He thought, wow, so beautiful. For the creator of the whole universe to say about this one small, seemingly, part of his creation, so very beautiful. The rest was just beautiful. <laughs> but we're fabulous. <laughs> we're very beautiful. And as a young gay man growing up in an agnostic atheist home in Sydney, Australia, I was never told that by Christians. I was told, you're an example of why we're absolutely evil, disgusting, and should be rejected and put on the waste heap of history and sent to hell. That was kind of, <laughs> you're that person. So we're all made kind of very good and sinners, but you're just like really bad. <laughs> we're just going to delete you out, and we're all just going to continue on with our lives because that's weird, because we read Romans 1 really terribly. <laughs> yeah, if you did. Uh, <laughs> and so, fabulous. But that can't, it can't stay there. We fell, sin entered, death came. But God allowed this so that he could reveal something even more glorious in the weakness, in the death. He is the God that takes death, nothingness, end point, where it's all lost. And he transforms it into something glorious. 
He takes a dead Messiah on a cross to become the Lord of the whole universe. That's the God we serve. The most miraculous God you could ever imagine up takes death and makes it life. Takes a gay man who feels completely alienated, has rejected himself and become an angry gay activist and anoints him in the middle of a gay pub in Sydney. (laughs) That's the God we serve. I want you to get excited about that God. I want this place to be filled with praise because he's worthy of that. My story is that he's so worthy. He's glorious. And he's making us glorious. It doesn't mean sin isn't sin. It doesn't mean the created order isn't the created order and that we haven't fallen from it and that we don't have desires that continually want to betray that good creation that we are. But he has a plan to make us glorious. So hashtag fabulous, make glorious. Now, if the greatest apologist probably in the church, in church history, maybe Tertullian would compete with him, C.S. Lewis says that, you know, he came to the questions of his day and he had many amazing answers, but he said, at a certain point, I have no answers anymore, only the life I've lived. I want to share this story with you and there's so many answers I feel like <laughs> I, I've been given, revelations that I've been given, but they're nothing compared to the revelation of the love of God. 1 Corinthians 13, if we have all that prophetic knowledge and we have all the like, connection to heaven that you want, but you don't have a revelation of the love of God. You're just a clanging symbol. So today I want to focus in on that. I was told love is love by the gay rights movement, and I'm grateful in many ways to the gay rights movement for what it has given me, to be able to get up here this morning and be able to share my story and to be able to be real about my sexuality and my desires in the body that's not yet re- resurrected. I'm grateful for that. However, love is love was not a very good definition. Love is love was like a feeling that could easily be manipulated by the commodification of desire in our society where people don't really know who they are. They don't really know what love is. It's just a tautology. That's a fancy speak for, it doesn't give you any definition. It's an empty phrase. But we know in 1 John 3.16, it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. This is the centerpiece of what love should be for us as a church. Not a feeling, not just a desire, but something that's revealed to us through a human person from the Father by the Holy Spirit. That is the real love that we have to wrap our identities and our human struggle around. And you might not agree with where I've come to today, but my encouragement is to do that and not put up walls between you and God. And so... I didn't know that when Jesus in the Gospels comes at a certain point in the Gospel of John, he says, the greatest love that we can have, no greater love exists than to lay down your life for your friends. No, I was told by my society, sexuality, like romance, you know, I'm thinking Aladdin, Disney, that's the real love, that's where I find my definition of love. That's where I start my identity. And of course, if you start there, you're gonna produce an idol pretty quickly called marriage. You're gonna want that above everything else, including God, and you're gonna try to change his truth to get there. But let me tell you, the heterosexual church made marriage an idol, and we, that, that was set up by the church, and then the gay community came along and said, we're gonna take that and we're gonna do it better than you. <laughs> and they've done a pretty good job. But 
we weren't preaching the gospel. We weren't preaching the friendship love of heaven as the ultimate love that should define our identities, not marriage, not sex. Heaven, love in the future. Jesus says, there will be no marriage. You will become like the angels. I don't really know what that means. I was like, Jesus, you could have left us a little bit more explanation, but you just want to keep it nice and mysterious. So when we get there, we're like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. (laughs) He's sneaky and sassy. (laughs) Sneaky Jehovah. So... More than just that. But anyway, (laughs) let's keep going. So I'm there as this young 14-year-old trying to work out my sexuality, come to realization that I'm attracted to the same sex and can't really change it and have tried and tried and tried to be attracted to women. Even the point I got to the school dances and all the boys were like looking down (laughs) with the girls that had come to dance with him because I went to a single-sex school. And I was the only boy or one of the only boys that was like actually engaged their face. (laughs) They'd be like, I want to be your girlfriend. (laughs) And I'd be like, oh... (laughs) And I'm actually attracted to you. Um, this is really hilarious. And, but underneath that veneer of school was this deep wrestle of self-rejection. And I came to the point where I was like, I have to stop rejecting myself because I have this desire and I can't change it. And the thing is, God doesn't require us to make ourselves pure and holy before we come to him and have everything right inside He doesn't. He wants the brokenness because that's where his glory is revealed. It's through the wounds of the crucified Messiah that glory flows into the whole universe. Of course he wants your brokenness. Of course he's excited about what kind of glory he's going to bring to his name through that wound, through that hurt, through that brokenness that you never chose but is just there. And that's for everybody, whatever your sexual orientation, whatever your gender identity or struggle. He wants to turn that upside down and give it a completely different meaning. So there I am as this young person, Henry Now, in a same-sex attracted or gay priest, he said, wonderful spiritual writer, he said, over the years I've come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved, that is Jesus' voice. Being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. Popularity, success, or power in America, in every nation, but particularly America, they're there. But do you know where they come from, America? They come from your self-rejection. Right at the heart of the doctrine of sin is not rebellion from God. That's a symptom of sin. What happened in the garden is they rejected themselves and they became shameful, so they had to cover themselves up and run away from God because they didn't know who they were anymore. And they thought God could never love them, and it was all over. You might be like that this morning. You have that shame. But I want to tell you, God's love wants to break you out of that shame this morning, whatever your story And I didn't know as a young person, I was told, like, sin is just, you're rebelling against God. And I'm like, I didn't choose to have this desire. Why would a creator make me to have these desires and then condemn me for them? I didn't have the complex anthropology of the Bible that told me about the fall and creation and redemption and how all three intersect in our human experience of who we are and identity has to be wrapped around that. Yeah, that's a lot of theology. I get it, but we need that. We've got to start getting deeper so the, the, the solution is not to abandon the gospel. The solution is to go deeper into the gospel. There are so many amazing answers and bedrock gold that God has just put under this gospel that seems foolish still to our culture. 
And so I knew I had to reject self-rejection. And so I opted for radical self-disclosure. Hello, my name is David Bennett. I'm gay. And if you have a problem with that, I have a problem with you. So get out of my way. What that angsty, gay activisty voice, atheist gay activist voice was controlled by was self-rejection. I thought by this radical self-disclosure of who I am as gay is the number one thing that's important for you to know, and if you reject me, get out of my way. That self-disclosure was equally controlled by self-rejection. I wasn't free, but I thought I was liberated. And that's what's happened in the gay rights movement is we've gone, we're free, and then we're all looking like, I'm actually not satisfied. You can get married, you can have a partner, you can have kids, you're not gonna be fulfilled. Everything's been done before. The only thing that isn't vain or being done under the sun is to know God intimately in a relationship. That's what Solomon learned. He got to the highest point of power. It's not gonna satisfy you. And that was my story. I was still controlled by self-rejection. And that doesn't mean that I don't now still identify in some way as gay or same-sex attracted. I still need to be real that my body hasn't been raised from the dead. It's not, it still has desires that misaim from the created order of God. But praise God, there's a future that's greater, that that desire can be brought into. Ravi Zacharias says, all people are searching for four main things, meaning, morality, origin, and destiny. The greatest gospel in our society that is trying to answer these questions that isn't the gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel of sex. It's trying to, sex promises to answer those four things. But in my life, it was like trying to put a square peg in a round hole. It couldn't give me true meaning, morality, origin, and destiny, even if it promised them. It always sold me, sold me short. And science was saying, you don't, we don't know why you're gay. We, 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 we've tried to look into this, and we can't find a gene. We can't, it's just so complex, but we know it's not a choice. We know that you didn't choose this. And then Christianity eventually showed me the reason that I had these desires is because Adam fell in the beginning. Because original humanity turned from God, and that's all Romans 1 is trying to talk about. That our desires have been subjected to decay and difficulty because of this entry of death into but that's not the end of the story. So I reject Christianity as the cause of homophobia. I can't understand how this God would allow me to have these desires that I could never choose and condemn me for them. What kind of insane sycophant is that God? <laughs> but I didn't know the story of the gospel. And so I had a very flat way of understanding this. So I end up in the park with my Russian Orthodox boyfriend at the time, and he hands me this amber cross with gold flecks in it, and I start to go on my gay activist rant about, why would you give me a symbol of our oppression as a gift? Vladimir. <laughs> like, what is wrong with you? Your dad is like the biggest homophobe I know. Like, Russians, come on. Like, it's terrible. Like, what your church says about gay people is not okay. Like, what about Paul? And what about women? He just stops me, puts his hands on my lips, and kisses me. And says, like, shut up, basically. <laughs> it's kind of romantic at that time. But, and I really needed that. <laughs> but there was as if God was there somehow in my mess, in my difficulty, in my wrestling, in my Jacob with the angel wrestling in this moment. And a man gets up 
A man drives up on a motorbike, sees us kissing, and takes a large stone from the garden bed and proceeds to throw it against my back. And this rage filled me. I was like, this cross in my hand is where this homophobia and violence comes from. I'm going to dedicate my life to destroying Christianity because it is culpable. The blood is on its hands. And there I was projecting my self-rejection onto a whole community of people I knew nothing about in ignorance, but I was so controlled by self-rejection and anger. So, of course, naturally, I become a French existentialist, (laughs) nihilist, like go to French exchange, there are like these things in my life. And I end up at a psychic in the alternative suburb of Sydney, sipping my soy chai latte with my token feminist friend, and she's dyed her hair black from blonde as a statement against the patriarchy. I'm like, I love it. (laughs) It's like, "Mm, I'm just gonna go to like my psychic, you know? Even though I'm an atheist, you'll go to DC today and you'll see like, in such an atheistic, power-hungry city, love DC by the way, I wanted to be a politician, They're the most psychics I've ever seen. (laughs) Like, you think people aren't spiritual on the other side of a culture war? Oh, they're spiritual, all right. They're more hungry probably than you are, and they're just trying to find the object of worship and getting it wrong, just like we all are. (laughs) We need Jesus. And so there I was in this psychic, and of course her name's Rosemary. She has a velvet jacket. She's burning sandalwood incense. She reads my cards, and she's like in the process of interpreting it all through this archetypal system of Jungian psychology and spiritual guides. <laughs> she looks at me. She's like, oh, wow. Oh, you're a child of the light. You're destined to be with Jesus, the greatest mediator in the spiritual realms. Oh, you're so blessed, Dave. And I was like, can I have my $20 back? I did not come here to hear about Jesus. <laughs> and I'm with my token feminist friend in the coffee shop afterwards. And I'm like, she is an undercover evangelist using this psychic thing and tarot card reading to bring people to Christ. I know it. <laughs> and mark my words, I will never become a Christian. And here I am today, 15 year or so years later, as a Christian evangelist. <laughs> and the irony is deep. But because I was controlled by this self-rejection, I could not see God's grace breaking through to me through the mouth of the witch of Endor. She was kind of nicer than the witch of Endor. (laughs) And I became that gay activist, and that grace did not reach me, and I became more and more angry. And I was on the university campus, and I was see the Christian blue pastel Christian Union posters, and I was like, there they are again, trying to brainwash me into a relationship with a first century Palestinian Jew in heavenly skies for all eternity. What a bunch of deluded weirdos. <laughs> and I'm gonna, I'm gonna take the gay marriage march posters, I'm gonna just all over their posters, and I did that. I went through the whole campus. And afterwards, I kind of felt this sense of release and justice against these bigoted idiot Christians. But as I felt this hatred towards the church, I also kept feeling this desire for transcendence, for more. And it wouldn't leave me alone. And C.S. Lewis says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. But because I was in a naturalistic system that didn't believe in God, I kept hitting the ceiling. And it hurt. And I made it worse and worse. 
And Sarah Coakley says, the only way in which desire can be safely acknowledged and explored is if it is understood most fundamentally as a desire for God and just so as capable of purification and elevation. That's all the theology to take in. But this wrestle was something God wanted to save and elevate and purify. It wasn't actually ultimately terrible, even though sin had affected it. And so there I was, and I was at the, the, on Oxford Street, and I had my Charlie Chaplin pen and my beautiful moleskin, and I wrote the question, what is love, with my Subi jeans from Melbourne, my wonderful fringe, and post-punk dancer. <laughs> then I go, hand my, like, <laughs> my journal out to everyone, and I'm hoping deep down that someone might have a wonderfully profound answer for me. What is love, baby, don't hurt me? That was the question I wrote, what is love? And that's basically a pop song back in my face is what I got from this secular world, from this world system. There was nothing deep in anyone's response, and these were the intelligentsia, the political leadership of the future of Australia, and that's all I got was a pop song. Never had I hated that song so much in my life. And secretly, in my darkness, in, in the cab in Sydney, the secular facade of love and romantic love broke. The gospel of sex didn't work for me anymore. And so I was like, there is no meaning. There are many people in America today that feel that. And we as the church have the most incredible opportunity to speak into that hunger in a way that doesn't confirm the stereotype, that doesn't help the devil condemn people with the law. And that's what we've done as the church a lot of the time. Done the enemy's work for him doesn't even have to lift a finger. And so there I am, Christmas lunch 2008, with my fundamentalist, bigoted, Pentecostal uncle, and I've had this conversation with my mom because she's been converted to Christianity through them, and I hate them, and I said, you have to choose between me, your real son standing right in front of you, and your delusional God in the heavens that doesn't exist. Make your choice. And she said to me, David, I don't have to make that choice. That is a false choice. By loving God, I love you better. And I'm telling you, the LGBTQI community has said to the church, unless you choose us over God, it's over. But that's a false choice. You, church, don't have to make that choice. God has already chosen bunches of LGBTQI people to be in his kingdom, including me, and they're just brothers and sisters alongside you, called to radical obedience like you are, to break your idols, to break your alabaster box at Jesus' feet. The discipleship that God is calling for all of us to have is equal, and if we don't give it, we're selling each other short, whether we're gay or straight, whether we have same-sex attraction or we don't. So there I was, and... Mr. Cynic, (laughs) and I said to my uncle, he made a comment at the Christmas lunch table 2008 about God, and I said, you Christians think you have the absolute truth. Well, I can tell you, you don't even, you can't even communicate truth with language. There is no absolute truth. I've studied postmodern philosophy, and he leans over to me, he says, David, there's a little problem with what you're saying. You just said there's no absolute truth, that's an absolute truth, and you just communicated that with language, so you just doubly contradicted yourself. I was like, oh! It's like, he's done Christian apologetics. He knows that Ravi Zacharias guy. <laughs> and so I'm like intellectually defeated and I like storm out of the room. 
And he's in the car on the way home with my aunt, and he has this word from God. He said, I saw the Holy Spirit over David. He's going to become a Christian in three months' time. She's like, did you just, did you just the same David that we're talking about? Like the one, just, he's like, yeah, yeah, totally, 100%. So my mom and my aunt and my uncle start like praying into this prophecy. And three months later, I'm in a pub in central Sydney with this filmmaker who's got her film into the largest short film competition in the world. And I'm amazed by her. And she tells me that how she got into this competition was supernatural and that God did it. <laughs> Deliver me, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I was like, okay, like which one? Vishnu, Allah, like Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> okay, sure. Well, I'm gay, and I've read one Corinthians six nine and Romans one and Leviticus eighteen. I'm I'm, I'm good. Thank you so much. I, I don't want to really talk about your God, but I'm interested in you. She turns around to me. She says, David, um, I wouldn't usually do this, but I wow. Whoa, and she starts like full on like charismatically just like being filled with the spirit and like having this revelation of how much God loves me. And she's like, wow, oh my God, wow, whoa. And she's like, you know, God loves everyone, but like, um, it's special. (laughs) And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, you are so loved by God. You're like, David, you know, like, wow, the beloved. And I'm like, okay, I don't really know what you're talking about. <laughs> She's like, I, you know, I, I don't usually do this, but could I, could I pray for you? I'm like, well, um, I'm like, I suppose, like, I'm a good agnostic, but like, good luck, honey. I don't think anything's going to happen. So I'm like open, but like nothing's going to happen. So good luck. And she launches into the Christian prayer of the century. In the name of Jesus, by the blood of the lamb, every darkness leave. I'm like, wow, Okay. <laughs> I was like, I like this. It's kind of spicy. <laughs> it's like, this is like new age, you know? It's like full on, like, wow, spiritual. And this other part of me, like, run away from this crazy fundamentalist. She's mad. And I went with the spicy side. <laughs> and so she's praying, and I go into this, like, cocoon. And, you know, in the Bible, it talks about Kronos and Kairos in Greek. And I, Kronos is like, tick, tick, tick. And Kronos, Kairos is like, the kingdom is coming. Stop. And time melts before the glory and majesty of God. And here I am, it's happening. And I feel this like hovering sensation of this like weird, windy thing on the top of my head. And I'm like, what's that? And it was the Ruach. It was the Holy Spirit hovering over me, ready to perform God's word. And in that moment, I felt someone pour like a vial of oil all over my head and power through my legs. It's like, oh my gosh. God is real. Like, this changes everything. And half of me is like crying because I'm disappointed that God's real. And half of me is like, this is awesome. <laughs> like, it was just really intense. <laughs> and this voice pierces through and says, do you want me? The first question Jesus asks in the Gospels is, what do you want? And then they pick up the cross and follow him. He's the one that we want. That's why the first question he asks is, what do you want? I'm like, hello, creator of the universe, hotline, deep. <laughs> Second time, do, what do you want? Third time, what do you want me? Do you want me? And I say yes, and then I see this veil over my heart. And 2 Corinthians, it talks about um, how there's a veil over our hearts and that they do not understand. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. 
And in this moment, there was this pinprick of light that came from nowhere, like one of those old conversion paintings in England during some of like the first Great Awakenings. It goes straight into my innermost part, and I feel this breath just fill me. I'm like, I'm breathing without breathing. She's like, hallelujah. You're being born again. It's the Holy Spirit. He loves you. I'm like, you are, what are you on? Like, <laughs> and then she just, like, I'm, I'm going to keep praying for you. I'm like, okay, whatever. So she keeps praying, and I hear this voice say, will you accept my son Jesus as your Lord and Savior? I'm like, oh, no, it's the Christian God. And I felt this, like, huge tug of war, and that's why I called my book A War of Loves. It's like, which love are you going to make ultimate? Your love of living the world's way or your love of this new God you've just met? And this very faint, yes, comes out of my spirit. And the love of God is just like poured out on me like a deluge. Like it's not subtle, it's Greek style. You know, it's Jewish style. It's like full on revelation of the love of God. And I'm just crying these tears of healing and inner life that I've never prayed in my life, never had in my life. And I was just released. There was this release. It was the most incredible experience. She had to get like a flannel and wipe me down. So I was so hot from the the burning purity of the God that had just made me his. And I went home that night, and my mom was waiting up, and I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to have to eat my words. And she's heard about the prophecy. She's waiting for it to happen. And so I get in, and she's like, David, how are you? I'm like, so um, I just, I think I, uh, like, (laughs) vomit. (laughs) I think I just became, um, just became a, I became a, Christ, a Christian. Hallelujah! I knew he was the God of the impossible because I made a covenant with him that if he saved you, then I know he's the God of the impossible because, David, you were impossible to save. <laughs> and so I go to the film competition and I'm like, all my queer friends at uni think I'm mad. I've ex- encountered the God of the universe, like I'm giving my sushi rolls out to homeless people. That's a big form of transformation. <laughs> And I'm looking at a star in the sky. I'm like, all right, God, if you're really real, like, and I'm not just wish-fulfilling my way into this, I need you to give me a rational sign. Like, show up. Or, like, I'm an atheist gay activist. Like, it better be good. I'm out. So I run down to the red carpet. She's won the home film competition. She turns over to me, and she says, David, God has been bugging me to tell you all night that he exists, and you just need to know that. And by the way, if you want that interview, come to church with me on Sunday. I'm like, you're good. (laughs) So I go to church with her on Sunday, and I find out it's the same church as my mom, my aunt, and my uncle, and that God has orchestrated this entire divine conspiracy to save me. So I literally could not resist it. I was a Christian. Have you experienced the love of God is the question she asked me in that pub that pierced right through that veil. Has the church asked that question to the communities it maybe has struggled to include? I don't, know, I don't think it has. I think it's time for the church to start asking that question to others who feel alienated from God. Jesus displayed this radical identification with those who were outside Israel's covenant. He showed something that just broke open the world he lived in, and radically challenged the idolatry of, it, of the time. Church, are you ready to do that? <laughs> for the sake 
of all those who have been rejected, who have been condemned? Are you ready to take a social risk and step out and say, you are loved by God and I'm gonna stand by you until you know the meaning of those desires, until your desire for God has become so strong that it's stronger than anything else and then you'll know the meaning and you'll know how to live it out. So there's not a repressive regime that oppresses you, but it's something that gives you true, wonderful life that you've been craving your whole life. And I'm on that journey with you. I'm still learning as a disciple. Let's be it together. Friends, sexuality is not an evangelistic issue. It's a discipleship issue. And until people know the gospel the way that I knew it from the inside out, the way that John Wesley came to know it in your own denomination, and I say this prophetically before you in United Methodist Church today, will you stop being an almost Christian? Will you see the Moravians full of joy, full of the life of God, serving the slaves of the time that were oppressed by colonial power? Will you see that faith of Jesus Christ that breaks the chains of empire? Will you see it? And will you come in and believe, not just memorize your Bible, not just have all the words and none of the life of the Spirit living in you that actually sets the world free, Isaiah 61. Will you have that faith? That includes people radically, but doesn't compromise the created order of God that he established in the beginning, male and female. It's an intense call to be a disciple in our current culture. I find it hard sometimes. I just want to belong on the side, but I'm telling you, I refuse to bow my knee to anything else but Jesus Christ as my Lord. I will not worship an idol in this culture. I will be honest about my sexual desires. I haven't received a resurrection body yet, but I will not bow to that as ultimate. I have been delivered into a new kingdom of light that is breaking in and nothing can stop it. It will come and it is coming today. I'm just preaching here, I'm sorry. It's so good. I stand today as someone who's given my sexuality to God, as a celibate, gay, same-sex attracted Christian. And I want to read this passage out to you from Isaiah 56. It's about the eunuchs. Eunuchs were unclean. They could not enter the holy presence of God in the Old Testament because the law said so. Because the law is still a description of God's good holiness and righteousness, right? It's still spiritual and good, but none of us can live up to it because none of us are truly holy and righteous except Jesus. And he went into the heavenly realm and he fulfilled it and he's done it and the blood has been put on the mercy seat and now the Holy Spirit can live in us and we're righteous and just. And I have been a receiver of that good inheritance, and so have you. I want you to see how radical this is in its day, that it would be so radical for you in its day. It would be so beyond into the third way. These eunuchs who didn't fit in the gender binary of the time, who didn't fit in the easy male and female marriage covenant that was designed for human sexuality, who were kind of weird to the Jews and the Greeks and rejected by them. Here is the God that became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ speaking to the prophet Isaiah 600 years before Jesus came. said, let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who, give, who keep my Sabbaths and who choose, choose what pleases me. I love this. It's not, it's not abrogating the law. It's not taking away the good commands and Sabbaths of God. It's retaining them, but then it says, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple, this church, and its walls 
a memorial and a name better than having sons and daughters, a name better than just having a family. I'm going to give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. In Isaiah 53, it says, who has heard of his generation? That's the prophecy of the cross. On on the cross, Jesus became a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of heaven and gave up having a family. And there's a deep prophetic truth I want to unravel to you today and leave with you and let it get deep within your hearts that this is the radically inclusive God who is the creator, who doesn't destroy or amend the created order, but who includes everyone who has been desacralized and fallen from that created order. And he says, wherever there's lack, I'm going to give something even greater. The celibate gay Christian is going to become the one that God uses to talk about this. That's what he did in my life from those days when I was saved. It was a long journey, and at the 4 p.m. service, I want to unpack a whole lot more. There's so much more to say, but I want you to get this. This is the God we serve. He became the eunuch. He gave the name to those who couldn't enter the temple like me. And in Acts 8, there was an Ethiopian eunuch who gets baptized after reading Isaiah 53, and he becomes the inheritor and spiritual father of a whole continent of people, namely Africa. And that's the kind of God that we serve as a church. That's the kind of God who takes same-sex desire and then relates it to that glorious future and gives a spiritual progeny to those who can't just easily marry And celibacy isn't the only option for people like me. There is also marriage and mixed orientation marriage. That is an option too where God gives a special grace to someone to be with an opposite sex partner. And that does happen in many people's lives. And it's beautiful. But this message of celibacy is needed to break the idols that we have kept as a culture. And so I'm just going to pray over us that we would be those radical disciples as a church and change the narrative that we live in today of two sides that are never going to really bow the knee to Jesus. Lord God, I thank you so much for Story Church. I think that it's a church that tells your story. Lord, and this is part of your story. It is no wonder that we find ourselves entangled in this question today. Because before the foundation of the world, you purposed to send your only son that he might become a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of heaven and make us children of God as a spiritual progenitor. Lord, I pray people on both sides would see the witness of this and how it lead them deeper into a third way that is your way, Lord, that I had to find through your love. I pray, Lord, even now the spirit of God would come upon everyone right now in this room. Lord, you would pour the oil out of the sacred intimacy that changes everything in our lives and calls us deeper. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Father. And fill your people with power to be your witnesses and not to bend the knee to any other name but Jesus Christ. Amen.